Hi, this is Nathan Owens from the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse in Antigua. Every Tuesday evening at 7.30, we have a live call-in program discussing real-life issues from the Caribbean. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. You're listening to That's Truth, a live call-in program with Dr. David Murphy, designed to answer your questions biblically in this confusing culture. Dr. Murphy has over 30 years of counseling and ministry experience here in the Caribbean and is ready to answer your questions according to truth. Good evening and welcome to another exciting, informative episode of That's Truth. And the episodes are based around your questions and being able to answer your questions. As usual, we're sitting in the studios of the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. Sitting across the broadcast desk from me is Pastor Dr. David Murphy. Good evening, Pastor. Uh, good evening, Brother Nathan, and good evening to the listening audience. Yeah, it doesn't matter where you are listening from. We are thankful that you are listening. It doesn't matter whether you're listening on 92.3 FM, 1160 AM, online at our website or some other online radio link, or maybe you're on Facebook and joining us that way. We are thankful that you've taken time out of your Tuesday evening. I know that you have a lot on your busy schedule, and we appreciate you making time to join us here on That's Truth. And I say join us because this is a live interactive program, and we would love for you to send in your questions. Maybe it's a question about life. Maybe it's a question about the Bible. Maybe it's something that you've wondered about for years or decades. Maybe it's something that someone just asked you at work today, and you really don't know how to answer it from the Bible. And you can send in your questions Pastor, I'm excited about this episode. We have a lot of questions, some that are carryover from last week, and some that are new questions that have already come in. And if we get through all of these, we will pick back up with our topic of demonology. But let's pick up with a question from Antigua. Uh, this is a carryover from last week, just a little bit of a clarification. Pastor, you remember the question about a person who said, if a pastor talks to you and tells you that you have a freedness or a spirit of being afraid inside of you, what does that really mean? I believe at the end of the program I had uh, referenced that it was a spirit of fraudness, but it's freedness. What does that mean? Okay, it was... Um the word "fraidness," by the way, is not a dictionary word. You can check the dictionary; it's not there. So I think it's some kind of colloquialism, or it's probably some kind of dialect the person is using. But the fact that they're using the word "fraidness," um, I think um, they're suggesting that the person has a spirit of fear. Uh, maybe uh, a person is not bold; uh, they lack confidence, and they have a timid personality. So I think the pastor is saying that. Um, the person is kind of reticent, reserved, and uh, or maybe they have decisions to make and they just can't make decisions because they have this inner fear. But the whole idea is that the person lacks confidence and uh, lacks boldness and perhaps even lacks faith. My suggestion to the person who asked the question, uh, to get greater clarity, is always to go to the person who actually uttered the, uh, the, the um, particular word. 
Um, and but I think that's what the person is suggesting when they use the word frailness. I uh, mean that you're, you're timid in spirit and uh, not bold enough, and you're, you're fearful. Therefore, you can't make decisions or can't uh, make choices. That would be my suggestion. In a WhatsApp question, thank you for the individual who sent in that question. We appreciate it. We appreciate you clarifying for us after the program. A WhatsApp question, Pastor, from uh, the islands here in the Eastern Caribbean. Good night. I have a question. Do you know how to have a beautiful mind? Well, number one, I, I, I'm not too sure how the person is going to define a, a beautiful mind. Uh, I suppose that it's a subjective um, definition. But when I think in terms of a beautiful mind, I am thinking the person is probably um, having the idea of an individual who has a good, honest, caring, thoughtful mind. Um, and probably a person who is fair and balanced in looking at issues and events and people. Uh, but, you know, that is how I would interpret a, a beautiful mind. I would say, however, in regards to this whole matter of um, cultivating a, a, a mind, you know, the Bible has a lot to say about the mind. Um, as a matter of fact, I did a little uh, research um, today, and I found that 39 times the Bible makes a reference to, to mind in the Old Testament, and there's seven different Hebrew words used for mind. When you come to the New Testament, there are 56 references to the mind, and there's 16, 16 different uh, um, Greek words that are used. Um, one of the best books I have read that really focuses on that aspect of the personality of the mind is one by Worsby on the book of Philippians, and in that book, uh, Dr. Worsby shows how extensively the word mind and think uh, is used in, in the book. And then he talks about four different minds you can identify in the four different chapters. For example, if I might share this with you, um, he said that we're troubled by four, uh, four um, matters that really disturb us mentally. Those are the circumstances, people, things, and the future. And he says in each one of those chapters, uh, there is an appropriate mind that meets that particular need. In terms of circumstances, he says the mind that you need in chapter 1 is a single mind for me to live as Christ and that is gain. And he calls that the single mind. And then when it comes to deal with people, he talks about the submissive mind in chapter number 2. Um, he talks about let us have the mind of Christ. And then he deals with things extensively in chapter 3 and he talks about the spiritual mind. And then in, in um, the fourth thing we talk is the future. He talks about the uh, supplicating mind, the mind that prays to God and not be anxious. I would suggest to you that more important than a beautiful mind is the mind of Christ. And uh, we are told in Philippians chapter 2, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And the, the, the mind of Christ is a servant's mind that uh, submits to God and seeks for the welfare of others. I think it's better to pursue that kind of a mind than trying to achieve something that is so nebulous and so subjective, what we call a beautiful mind. What do you mean by a servant's mind? What are some characteristics? What are some things I should set out for? Well, again, if you want to find it out, uh, Philippians chapter 2 uh, says that let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And then he says, um, even though he had equality with God, he did not uh, hold on to that equality. He was willing to surrender that in the interest of man's well-being. And then he said he became a servant, a doulos, a person who surrendered his will to God to do God's will. And he submitted himself even unto death. That is sacrifice. So we talk a servant's mind. You talk a mind that is focused, first of all, in doing God's will. 
and a mind that is willing to serve to the point of sacrifice and trying to reach out for the, to help others and to, for their welfare. That would be what I would call a servant's mind. But the whole idea behind a servant's mind is the willingness to help and to serve as opposed to be served. You remember Jesus said, I did not come to be served, but I came to serve and to give myself a ransom for others. That's the kind of mindset that we that we should have. And the believer should always be have that kind of a mindset when he's willing to serve and willing to help as much as possible. So you're saying that even if you are a pastor of a church, even if you are the head of an organization, you should, still should have that servant attitude? I don't know how you can serve in those capacities without having a servant's mind, a servant's attitude. Uh, a pastor or any other leader, um, you know, our Lord was very, very specific. He said, you know, we're not supposed to be the Gentiles. They command and they give orders and bark orders and because they've got authority. He said it should not be so among you. Let him that will be chief among you be the servant of all. So clearly the leader uh, who is one who wants to lead, his primary task is to try to be the servant of all. There should be nothing in a, in a church that a pastor should not be willing to do. If anybody else can do it, I'm not saying he, he that's his job, but he should have that mindset. If they came into the church um, sometime and he sees that there's water or the place needs cleaning or something and there's a mop there, he shouldn't have to command somebody to do it uh, if he's there and there, no, no wait until they come. If he sees paper in the, in, the, in the sanctuary, I mean, he shouldn't say, that's not my job. I really think that um, we should always be willing to serve and always be willing to see the menial, most menial tasks as service to Christ and not think that's just when in the, in the chandelier and the bright lights that that means service to Him. But every leader, a Christian leader, should have a servant's mentality and no job should be so low within any church setting that a pastor should not be willing to do it, even if it was necessary to clean the toilets uh, in a situation. I think he should be willing to do that. Uh, you know, the Bible says God resists the proud and give us grace to the humble. And a, a person with a servant's heart has a humble attitude and a humble mindset. If you've just tuned in, you're listening to That's Truth, a live call-in program, an interactive program here on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. If you don't get a chance to listen to the program in its entirety this evening, you can hear a rebroadcast of it on Saturday afternoon on 1160 AM, 92.3 FM, from 3.30 p.m. until 5 p.m. The time across the Eastern Caribbean is 7.41. If you have already sent in a question and you haven't heard it yet, we will get to it in the order in which it came in. Like I mentioned at the beginning, we have a lot of questions that have already come in, but don't let that keep you from sending in your question. If you'd like to call in and be put live on the air, the phone line to call is one 268 462 7420. The phone line is open and available, waiting for you. 1268 462 7420. If you'd rather not talk live on the air, I understand, and we would be glad for you to WhatsApp or text your question to 1268 782 1454. Or you can send us your questions via Facebook Live. Go to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse Facebook page, click on the Facebook Live video feed, and then comment your questions, and they get passed along to Pastor Murphy in a timely manner. Pastor, a question from a listener says, Lately I have noticed that I am possessive, jealous, very aggressive, have anger problems when it comes to love. I cannot deal with rejection. Am I a mentally crazy person? 
I have accepted God into my life, but I am still stuck on these old ways that I abhor. They're the downfall to me. What are your thoughts, Pastor? Well, clearly you're not mentally ill or, or um, somehow irrational because you, you set forth very logically what your problem is. So uh, you might feel that way, and the pain must be very deep. But the, the essence of your problem is clearly rejection. And I don't think there's anything more ravaging to the heart and the soul than for a person to be rejected, and especially when you're rejected by somebody that you love or you care about. Um, that sometimes may be even more painful than death itself, believe it or not. Mm. So, matter of fact, the, the Bible says that jealousy is like hell. Uh, that's how difficult it can be when you love somebody and then you're, you're rejected. Uh, rejection has a tendency to chip away at your self-image. It, has, it chisels away at your confidence, and it cheapens your, your sense of self-worth. So it completely uh, diminishes you, and your, your, your mind becomes a haunting chamber where you keep hearing you're not worthy, you're not attractive, you're not appealing, uh, you know. Uh, so this is something that you're going to face that's going to haunt you again and again. Uh, there are people in the Bible who face rejection, and you can see how they reacted. You remember um, part of his wife? Uh, she made an approach to Joseph, and she made an advancement that Joseph rejected her. And you remember what she did? She attempted she to kill lied. him. She yeah. lied to get him in prison, but more, get his head off, because it, it, to tell her husband that uh, he made advances to her and tried to rape her, that could have meant Jace, Joseph's death. So that gives you an idea of how bitter and resentful and how malice uh, can build up in a person once they're rejected. Um, so, you know, it's, it's, it's a, a real painful problem, but I don't think that you are crazy or mad. I, I just think that you're trying to, to have to grapple with this, this kind of rejection. I would, I would say to you that if you're trying to find your self-worth and trying to find your dignity and your sense of pride and your value uh, by depending on a person, whether it be a male or a female, I think you're looking in the wrong place to find your identity. For a believer, you have to find your identity in Christ. What gives you worth as a person is the fact that you are a special creation. That's the first thing. And that God has made you and you're very special. You're the only unique person. You're the, you're the only you in this world, so you're very, very unique. All of us are unique in that. But the other thing is that He loved us so much to redeem us, to send His Son to die for us. So we don't derive our worth from what people sell us, the skin or our skin pigmentation, uh, our education. Uh, unfortunately, that's the way the world is. But for us, we should get our identity for knowing that we are created especially by God redeemed by Him and He loves us that's where we should try to find our identity if you try to find it in another human being believe you me you're always going to meet some kind of disappointment I don't care who that person you look into they're going to meet you with disappointment so try to first of all find your identity and worth in Christ the other thing I would like to say um, I'd like to ask you some, some questions probably you could see if you could decipher these in your mind and this person that has jilted you, um, is this person, do you feel this person is God's will for your life? Um, is she is she a believer? Um, do they have a serious walk with God? Uh, do they practice good Bible principles? Are they a member of an active, are they an active member in a good local church and serving the Lord? Has this relationship that you are craving and crying over and moaning over and weeping over and perhaps become resentful, has it benefited you anything spiritually? Have you grown any? Um, has this person been a drag on your life? Uh, or this person has helped to elevate your, your Christian life, see? Um, 
I think you need to ask those those kind of questions to, before you start moaning and groaning over because you might look back at this moment and realize it's the greatest thing that ever happened to you in your life. You just right now you you're grieving over this matter. Um, and you may ask another question: Have you allowed this person to become an idol in your life? It's an interesting verse. Nathan, could you read Ezekiel fourteen, three and four? Well, I'm turning there. I find it interesting you mentioned that. I remember my grandfather mentioning to me that uh, we need to make sure that people don't become idols in our life and that if we're not careful, God may take them take them out of our life. Well said. Ezekiel chapter 14. Yeah, verse 3 and 4. says, Son of man, these men have set up their idols in their heart and put the stumbling block of their iniquity before their face. Should I be inquired of at all by them? And verse 4, Therefore speak unto them and say unto them, Thus saith the Lord God, Every man of the house of Israel that setteth up idols in his heart and putteth the stumbling block of his iniquity before his face and cometh to the prophet, I, the Lord, will answer him that cometh according to the multitude of his idols. Clearly, uh, you've you got to realize we could set up idols in our hearts. Something becomes more important in our lives than God and his will. Uh, when that happens, you've got an idol. And may I ask you, are you allowing your personal insecurity to drive you uh, to hold on to a one-sided relationship that will lead you to a cul-de-sac, a dead end? It's not worth it. You know, um, may I suggest to consider one or two verses of Scripture, Proverbs chapter 3, verse 5 and 6. Uh, Trust in the Lord with all thy heart, lean on thy own understanding, and all thy ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct thy path. And then Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. And Psalm 43, verse 18 said, The Lord is close to the brokenhearted, and save those who are crushed in spirit. Um, and the last thing I would advise you, uh, my dear friend, is to find a good Christian friend that can hold you accountable, somebody you can share your problems with, and you know that's going to remain confidential, uh, somebody that you can confide in, and somebody that you know that will be very objective and uh, who hold a very good Christian standards, uh, I think that would be very helpful to find somebody. You know, even in the book of uh, Genesis, after God had made Adam, and it was clear that Adam used to talk with God, God would come down in the day, but even then God said it was not good for man to be alone. He needed a human companion, somebody he can relate to on a human level. And I think that's important as well for Christian. We have the Lord, but we also need Christian brethren. There's no such thing as a Christian lone ranger. Uh, God knows that uh, it's a family, uh, and uh, therefore I would suggest you see if you can find a good friend that can be a very close companion and who can um, help you in your walk and hold you accountable and perhaps give you good, good counsel. Pastor, can you give those three Bible references again for maybe this person, maybe someone else who's yeah, struggling? Proverbs with? 3, 5, uh, 6, uh, Matthew six thirty three, and uh, Psalm 43, verse 18. I think those are very, very helpful verses. The other thing that I, a person can do if they're going through a, a time of rejection is probably do a Bible study on rejection. Um, for example, one, another one that comes to my mind is Cain. 
I mean, Cain felt rejected that uh, his brother was accepted. And how did he respond? With anger, wrath, resentment, and then what? Final what? Murder. Mm-hmm. So when you get, if you don't try to lance this rejection and deal with the pus, it will fester and infect you and perhaps create gangrene and could lead to suicide or death. So you need help in this matter and don't take it lightly. But it would be interesting to do a Bible study on the matter, see how people reject it. And then uh, look at David. Uh, David was rejected when his son led a rebellion against him. And you remember when David was being uh, stoned and thrown a stone by a guy called Shema, and the, his uh, men said, should I go and kill Shema? He said, no, the Lord has allowed this to happen. David realized that a lot of what David did, uh, especially when he committed sin with Bathsheba, the Lord told him that he was going to have trouble in his family. And he began to realize that some of the consequences he was faced then was allowed of the Lord. And David's attitude was not one of spite and vengeance. Uh, he was saying, you know, this Lord has permitted this, and i got to bear this, whatever it is. So you can, not only the, the resentment that is there that leads to death, but also the resentment that leads to, uh, the, the, the kind of acceptance that leads to peace. And just let God work in your life to see what God is trying to teach you. But there are others you can look at as well that went to uh, our Lord. You must remember him that he was rejected, yeah. right? And uh, remember, I mentioned uh, some time ago, Philippians chapter 3, where Paul said that I may know him and the fellowship of his sufferings. Uh, again, I don't know if people understand what Paul is saying. Paul is saying that when he goes through suffering, he's trying to use that suffering to identify the kind of suffering our Lord went through. So he's, in a sense, trying to share in that pain that our Lord went through. Not that this was redemptive in the sense that it led to great uh, to, to some kind of miraculous grace, but the sympathy that was there and understanding what our Lord went through uh, is what Paul wanted. And sometimes um, it might be wise to see you look at your own rejection, look at the Lord's rejection, and see uh, he was able to face it. But remember that he was able to face it because he was what? Dependent on God the Father. He went through that dependent on God the Father. Not on, not on his disciples, because they weren't even there to succor him. Every man forsook him. But he depended on his Father in those moments with prayer and intercession. I'm thinking of a situation with David where he was rebuked and changed his heart after rejection. Pretty sure it was David. Uh, he he asked food from a man, and the man I can't think of the man's name. And the man said no, and then the man's wife came out and yeah. pled with David. Abigail. Yes, okay, I remember his name was Nathan uh, Nabal. Nabal. Yeah. yeah, yeah, you're right about that. Yeah. So. Even though we may get off on the wrong foot in relation to rejection, there's always opportunity for us to, when we're corrected, to rectify the situation by the grace of God. Well said. When you're listening to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse, and the name of the program is That's Truth, the voice that you hear teaching is that of Pastor Dr. David Murphy. And I am Nathan Owens here facilitating, asking the questions, looking up scripture verses, and the time across the Eastern Caribbean is 7.53. Broadcasting from Antigua, 11.60 a.m., 92.3 FM, and online at www.radiolighthouse.org. We don't want just you listening to the program. We would love for your family members, for your friends, for your acquaintances, your coworkers. Go ahead and send a WhatsApp or a text message, maybe a quick phone call. Maybe a Facebook message, however you communicate with your family and friends, no matter whether they're here in Antigua or the Eastern Caribbean or anywhere that they are, if they have the internet, they can listen at www.radiolighthouse.org. Yeah. I think that 
Maybe we'll do a program on rejection sometime. Okay. If you put a note there that we'll do that and do it more kind of extensively, how you respond to it, how to deal with it, etc. I think that'll be a helpful program. I have jotted that down. I think that'll apply to all of us. If we're not facing it right now, there will be a time where we'll face it to some degree in the near future. All right. Uh, another question that has come in, uh, Pastor do we know where heaven is? Is it really up, or is that just traditional teachings? You know, I was thinking of that statement. Uh, where, uh, you know, I don't know if you realize that we are suspended in the universe, so <laughs> we are up. To be very honest with you, uh, but look, the Bible is very, very clear that heaven is wherever God is, and when God will dwell with His people. Um, in Revelations twenty-one, verse one and two, and Isaiah sixty-five seventeen, and Isaiah sixty-six twenty-two, and Second Peter chapter three, verse ten to thirteen, tell us there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth, and uh, so we know that this whole system is going to be renovated, um, completely uh, renewed. And then the Bible says it's a new Jerusalem, the city of God that will come down. So the Bible's teaching on this matter is that. Uh, one day, this planet Earth is going to be remade, and uh, the heavens are going to be remade, and uh, the city of Jerusalem is going to come down. Some people are not too sure if it's going to come down to Earth or it's going to be suspended uh, above um, Earth. I somewhat hold to the view that it's going to suspend it because it's said that the Earth will receive the light of the New Jerusalem in the book of uh, Revelation chapter 21. But the key thing here is that God will be among us and Christ will be among us. The Bible says there will be no light because God will be, be no temple because God will be the temple. So we know that it, it's going to be um, in the future. And we also know that it's going to be in the heavens. And uh, But in the heavens, there is going to be a new earth and there's going to be a new Jerusalem. So that's the biblical teaching. But the key thing about heaven is that heaven is where God's people and God is for all eternity. If God is powerful... And we know he is. He spoke the world into existence, or yeah, he spoke it into existence. Why is it that he's had to be in heaven for 2,000 years creating these mansions? Well, you know, if you take Peter, for example, Second Peter, Peter, Peter says, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, some God's slackness, but is long suffering towards the none should perish. So the question is, the question was asked in those days, why does he delay it all this time? And Peter's answer is, he delays for redemption's sake. Mm-hmm. that he is waiting for, um, let's put it this way, in God's mind, I think God knows who is going to be make decisions, and he's waiting for that final decision to be made. But the prolonging, this, uh, prolonging of God's delay uh, is related to his redemptive purpose in people being saved. That's what Peter says very clearly, because uh, Peter said the scoffers coming to the last days, saying, you know, we heard that the Lord was coming from the time we were born, basically. And then Peter says, the reason why he's long suffering, he's willing that none should perish. So his delay is linked with redemption, and uh, it has to do with man's redemption. In conjunction with this question, another question, is hell really down? Is there evidence that anyone has descended to hell, or could it be another planet somewhere? Well, look, um, what we have in the Bible and is to understand that there are several words that are translated hell in the King James Version. Actually, there are three different words in the King James Version. There's the word Hades, which has to do with Sheol in the Old Testament. That is the place where before Christ died and his atonement death uh, was made, and that was the intermediary stage where everybody went. Uh, there is hell or Gehenna, which is the lake of fire, 
which is the final judgment after the final judgment, and then there's Tartarus, which is the place where demons are confined, uh, that is, those who are confined. You find that in Peter. Uh, Hades, let's talk about Hades for just a minute. Uh, when you check where the Bible indicates that Hades is, uh, clearly it seemed to be somewhere in the center of the earth. Look at Isaiah 14, 9 to 11. And Isaiah 14, uh, 9 yeah, to 11 yeah. says, Hell from beneath is moved for thee to meet thee at thy coming. It stirreth up the dead for thee. Even all the chief ones of the earth it hath raised up from their thrones, all the kings of the nations. All they shall speak and say unto thee, Art thou also become weak as we? Art thou become like unto us? And verse 11 Thy pomp is brought down to the grave, and the noise of thy voils, and the worm is spread under thee, and the worms cover thee. Okay, if you read that uh, passage very clearly, uh, it's talking about the uh, the fall of Babylon and the king of Babylon, and they're going down into Hades. The word hell there by the word Sheol okay. is the word Hades. That's the same word as used in the Greek language. But that's why he said the person asked me last night, does any conscious of people know? But clearly when you did the others who are already gone before, if you read down later as well, you'll find that it talks about other nations who are going to meet these people when they come. So that's why I said that uh, last time we would give a verse that would indicate that uh, those who are down there are waiting for those who are coming. But uh, notice it's hell from beneath, okay? So it's clearly beneath where the earth is. Look also at um, Ezekiel. And that wouldn't just be referencing the fact that we get buried in the earth? No, but it's not hell there. It's not Hades. It's okay. not Hades. Look at Ezekiel 32, um, verse 18 to 21. All right. That says, Son of man, wail for the multitude of Egypt and cast them down, even her and the daughters of the famous nations, onto the nether parts of the earth, with them that go down into the pit. Whom dost thou pass in beauty? Go down, and thou be laid with the uncircumcised. Verse 20. They shall fail in the midst of them that are slain by the sword. She is delivered to the sword. Draw her and all her multitudes. The strong among the mighty shall speak to him out of the midst of hell with them to help him. They are gone down. They lie uncircumcised, slain by the sword. Okay. The key word is the word nether lower parts of the earth, basically. So it is believed that this, this, this abode, this temporary Im- intermediate abode, is in the center of the earth somewhere. That, that's the, so it's, it's below the earth. That's where Hades is. But remember, Hades is not Gehenna. And that's the point I'm making. There are three words in the Greek language. When uh, Before our Lord had died, it is clear that there's a place, uh, people went to Hades, but they are compartments. Uh, if you read Luke chapter 16, there's one for the righteous and one for the, the wicked. One is comforted and one is not comforted. Uh, and that is where the unsaved person goes even today during the intermediary stage. The believer no longer goes to Hades. Jesus said to the man on the cross, Today shalt thou be with you in paradise. And at the, at the cross of Christ, you read Philipp- um, Ephesians, it said that Christ led captive captive. He took all the believers with him at his, at his resurrection to be with him. So absent for the body now is present. 
present with the Lord. But the, the, the question the person asks is, is referring to hell, if it's referring to Hades, the intermediary stage where the unsaved person goes, it would seem from that biblical passage, you know, both in Isaiah uh, 14 and Isaiah 32, that it is beneath, it's near the part of the earth, and it's believed that uh, it's in the center of the earth, basically. Is hell a literal place, or is it just a spiritual place of torment? Well, some people think it's amusing to talk about hell. Some people think that um, it's a kind of a naive. Other people think it's a kind of a figurative expression. But I wouldn't toy with that whatsoever because our Lord spoke more about this matter than any other subject he dealt with. He spoke more about hell than he spoke about heaven. I don't, and then he spoke about love as well. So for anybody to be uh, to think that uh, you know that it's not a literal place is to undermine the integrity of our Lord. Uh, he made it very clear, even in a parable. One, if you want to take us parable, Luke chapter sixteen, that there's going to be torment in hell. So it is hard for anybody to disprove that there is not a little place since Christ spoke so emphatically about it. And then when you come to the book of Revelations and the lake of fire, uh, Revelations chapter 20, we stand before God and give an account. That is the unsafe person. And whosoever was not found written in the land's book of life was cast in the lake of fire. That's hell. That's a place. And the Bible says, and they should be tormented forever unto the ages of the ages. I mean, the Bible can't be more explicit than this. And to twist it, to allegorize it, or to make it figurative, is to do it. It's to distort scripture. Um, so, I, <clears throat> only would you find, generally speaking, the cults entertain the idea that hell is is a figurative place or a non-literal place. But every orthodox Christian group uh, that takes the Bible seriously have always taken the Bible on its face value and interpret it very literally. And the Bible does talk about hell repeatedly. I would challenge anybody out there who has any doubt about this matter, invest in a Strong's Concordance. Go down to CLC and um, go and buy a Strong's Concordance and look up the word hell in the Bible. See how many times it is mentioned. See uh, who mentions it. And then... Uh, from your own study, um, come back next week and, and tell me why would you believe there's not a hell based on the, the amount of uh, information there in the Bible on this subject. Pastor, I've had friends, I've had acquaintances who have been part of the Christian circle and then have come to a point where they've rejected the idea of hell and have gone other directions. Can a person be saved without believing in hell? It was hard for me to believe that a person can... Uh, so recklessly discard clear biblical teachings on, on matters like this. I know that a person is saved by faith and trust in Jesus Christ, but where do you get that faith and trust from? It's on the book. So how do you, can you be selective and accepting one thing and, and denying the other? If yeah. you reject heaven, uh, hell, why you can't reject hell? And if you reject that, why can't you reject salvation? Listen, I think when it comes to saving faith, I think we accept the Bible for what it is because it is faith going by hearing, hearing by the Word of God. And I think people like that are probably apostatized and gone away from the faith. And I think one of the things as well that, that, that changes people's mind on this matter, as people get old, they get soft, and because they become so indulgent themselves, they think God is an indulgent God, forget He's a holy God. And I think that leads them to take ideas and twist ideas and mollify ideas and consequently to come up with uh, ideas that are contra- alien to Scripture. I think that's what happens. You're listening to That's Truth, a live interactive call-in program on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. If you have a question, we'd love for you to call in with it. You can call and be put live on the air by calling 1-268-462-7464. 
1-800-273-8220. I'll give that number to you again as you get your phone unlocked or pick up your pen and paper to be put call to call and be put live on the air and the phone line is open and available for you. 1-268-462-7420. If you'd rather WhatsApp or text your question, we would welcome it and you can send it to 1-268-782 one four five four and give that number to you again but let me just remind you if you have just tuned in this is a a safe place to ask your questions we're not here to mock you or belittle you we're here to sincerely answer your questions from scripture and if you listen to that's truth for any period of time i know you understand that and you would testify to that so don't hesitate to send in your questions you can whatsapp or text one two six eight seven eight two one four five four. Pastor, this next question is a very uh, thought-provoking one. Can a person be a Christian and have a truly open mind? For example, what if you accept the Bible as truth and then two years from now, after you've become a Christian, science disproves the Bible? To have an open mind as a Christian, do you always have to be ready to leave that belief system for something else? Well, look, I, that question um, of an open mind, um, uh, I ch- checked the dictionary for that, what, how to define an open mind, and this is how um, one dictionary defines it. It's a mind that's receptive to new ideas and arguments. Um, I don't like the word uh, receptive there. I, I mean... I would perhaps view an open mind, if you're looking at it, as a mind that is disposed to weigh, test, and evaluate new ideas and arguments. But the idea of being receptive in the sense that you accept what is done, I, I don't think that's what it, what it means. Um, the reality is, however, that there's no such thing as an open mind, an absolute open mind, totally impossible. Uh, there's no such thing as a neutral mind or an absolutely objective mind. Every mind has some presuppositions that is in its mindset. Um, and I'll tell you why that is so. Number one, man has a fallen nature with a fallen mind. And man's nature is innately has an affinity for sin, evil, and falsehood. So you can't trust the human mind because it's a fallen mind. Uh, so if you think you, I don't. I've never met a person who's totally. I'm not even totally objective myself. Uh, my mind is governed by certain presuppositions, like everybody else's mind is governed. By. The other thing is that not only is man's mind fallen, but the human mind is conditioned by influences, uh, by values. Uh, and, and that happens in the home, that happens in the school educational system, that happens with general society, the immediate environment in which you're constantly moving, you keep hearing things in. Uh, the world value system impacts how you think. The church and the Bible as well play a major part in that. Government policy, government laws, and I would add to other things, God's providence in dealing with the individual's life and also satanic activity is always involved in every human life. So for these for these reasons, um, there is no such thing as a complete, open, objective mind. All of us are influenced by ideas, and all of us have got um, have been somewhat indoctrinated and somewhat influenced by these things around us. So I don't think it's possible to have a complete, open mind. I would say to you that our task 
is to use our mind and our wills to examine, weigh, and evaluate the data that comes into our uh, into our minds or into our understanding. And there are two systems of evaluation, basically. One is uh, people can use uh, observation, experience, and reason. Totally. Observation, experience, and reason. That's called rationalism. That's the only, they're using the mind as a basis for decision making. The other option is revelation and reason. So in addition to a man's rational thinking, what God has revealed, and I think this is the way I operate on the basis of, um, I have an open mind to the extent that it, I use reason, but I also, my reason is governed by revelation, what God revealed in His Word. So I would say to a, a person, uh, really in truth and fact, I don't think it is possible to have a complete open mind. Um, I don't, even if you think you've got a complete open mind, that's not true. There's certain presuppositions that you have that are there that guide your thinking. Your, one of your presuppositions is that science is always right. My presupposition is that the Bible is never false, okay? And uh, anything that contradicts uh, the Word is not correct. I, I would uh, also say uh, to the person that the, there's a fundamental fallacy in the in the concept there about if the you become a Christian and two years down the line they discover that the science is <laughs> here is the the fallacy that uh, a, a modern fallacy and it is this that modern science is in conflict with biblical truth and that's not true true science is never in conflict with scripture pseudoscience hypothetical statements that cannot be proven, those are in clash with the Scriptures. But it's not a scientific fact that has been discovered that is in clash with Scripture. It's just the hypotheses of sciences that uh, cannot be proven. Remember that science is about observation, it's about experimentation, and it's about being able to, to experiment and repeat the experiment. Right? Unless you can do that, you don't have true science. Unless you can do the experiment to prove that it happened, you don't have true science. You have speculative science. And that's where we come in when we come with modern science. Uh, a lot of, take evolution. Evolution is not only not true, it's, it, it's so bogusly false that a lot of evolution there, uh, the problem with them, by the way, they're so embarrassed uh, now that they've begun to discover the DNA and the complex. You know, there's more information in DNA than in Encyclopedia Britannica. I, I, when I say I mean logical information. And they, they, they realize that, but how do you retract now? After so many years of teaching people that you, there's no intelligent design, there's no creator, everything happened by chance. Now the information they're discovering is systematic. It is not uh, garbage. Uh, it is actual information. It's systematic, and one must follow the other. It's an amazing discovery that they made, and they're so complex. Uh, now they're talking about intelligent design, and even that they hate because intelligent design means an intelligent being behind the design. But um, it's a, 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 a it's a, a real contradiction and a fallacy that the Bible is contradicted by science or can be contradicted by science. True science will never conflict with Scripture because the Scripture is God's word. And, and by the way, I I'm not too sure if people are aware of this that all the founding fathers of modern science were Christians. Uh, it, we could do a study here. Uh, at some point in time, I hope we can do that, to go through and list the scientists, scientists that laid the foundation of modern science. And all of them, by the way, were motivated by one reason. They believed that the mandate that was given to, to, the, uh, to man in Genesis chapter 2, that he would have dominion and uh, he would control and uh, the, the world, um, 
they believed that that was the basis for human science, that God had given man as a steward the right to investigate and find out and to control uh, the, the world. Not, not only that, they were, they were, they were, if, if God had created the world and the true creator, they knew one thing, they had to be laws. So we had to discover those laws. So they were motivated to discover what were the laws of science that govern the universe. It's out of that context that we have modern science. Modern science could never have come out of evolution. Everything happened by chance. If everything happened by chance, why could there be laws? So the, 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 the whole concept of modern science was born in the wound of Christianity and the, the, the Protestant Reformation. Uh, if I might just share with the person who asked the question um, uh, that the scientific revolution of modern times actually happened uh, as a result of the Protestant Reformation. L- let me mention some of these scientists, uh, uh, Nathan, if I, I may, for just a moment, so to encourage the person to understand how the foundation of modern science is really rooted in, 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 in uh, scientists who are Christians. Uh, take Leonardo da Vinci. Uh, a lot of people know that he uh, did the drawing of the Lord's Last Supper, but I don't know if people are aware that he was a great engineer, an architect, and he studied dynamics, anatomy, physics, uh, optics, biology, hydraulics, and either aeronautics. Uh, fascinating scientist, again, a true man of faith, uh, laid a lot of the... F- take uh, Johann Kepler, the founder of physical astronomy, for example. Uh, he established the discipline of c- c- celestial mechanics, uh, he demonstrated what is called the heliocentric uh, solar system. Uh, he also published um, um, tables dealing with uh, the motion of stars, and he has also contributed to the development of calculus. You take Francis Bacon. He's a man responsible for what is called the scientific method. Uh, it is he, a profound believer, but a great scientist. Um, take Pascal, uh, if we had some time, a great mathematician. Um, he's the father of hydrostatics and the man that brought about what is called hydrodynamics. As a mathematician, he laid the foundations for uh, calculus as well, and he's the one that established the laws of probability. He also invented the barometer. That's only just, a, I mean, I got a whole list of these men, and if we had time, we could spend the whole evening just talking about men who are great men of God, but great scientists. And these are the men that laid the foundation. When, when I was doing chemistry, I learned about a guy called Dalton. Dalton's atomic theory. It was Dalton's atomic theory that completely revolutionized uh, chemistry. And again, profoundly Christian, religious man. When I was just doing chemistry, I learned Boyle's Law. Who, who created the laws of uh, pressure and, and so on, and temperature? Again, it was Boyle that discovered those kind of laws. Uh, and um, Michael Faraday, we can talk about him, a great scientist, um, man that invented the generator, and he's the guy that did a lot of science and magnetism and discovered electromagnetism, etc. These are great men of faith, and but great, tremendously great scientists. I have a whole page here. If I started listing names, <laughs> <laughs> and these are look, there's a book I am going to recommend that uh, the person uh, try to purchase. It's a book written by um, Henry Morris. It is called Men of Science, Men of God. Uh, it's a very small book, maybe over 100 and something pages. But what he does, he documents all of these who are great scientists, Christian scientists, and he lists what they achieve and what they, what were the accomplishments. Fascinating book. So I'm just saying to the person who um, asked the question, um, you know, there's no conflict between true science and Scripture. And you don't have to fear that science will discover anything that's, that's false in the Bible. Uh, as a matter of fact, 
I, I, I'm not sure if you may be aware of this, but uh, all of the archaeological studies that have been done in the Far East, digging into the earth, there are over 20,000 locations that have been identified in the Bible that have been able to dig up. So it, it is historically correct. Uh, they have not found one discovery that is at odds with Scripture. Amazing, completely amazing. So I would say to the person, um, don't be fearful of becoming a believer. Get into the Word of God. Uh, start allowing the Word of God to, to open your heart and open your mind to truth. And then get some good uh, Christian books on evidence that relates to or relates to uh, scientific works, etc., etc. Uh, you are in good territory and in good hands. And then there is a, a a program called the Christian Research Institute that you can get on the internet where you meet people with PhDs and will answer all of the basic questions that you would have as a person. I think that would prove very helpful. One book, Pastor, that I've started reading recently that has, and I'd read it earlier, but it's such a wealth of knowledge is... Um, Josh McDowell. Josh McDowell, The yeah. evid- the New Evidence. The, the Demands of Verdict. Yeah, The Demands of Verdict. Very well written. If you're a person that is scholarly to any degree, you'll enjoy it. And uh, it's a it's a great book. Yeah, there's another one by Norman Geisler uh, called um, the Christian Encyclopedia of Apologetics. Uh, fantastic book, fantastic book, uh, very very extensive, uh, a large book over 500 pages. But uh, the index you, you can go to from one subject to another, from one person to another. Uh, he is also a very fascinating writer. But I, I, I have both of those books you're talking about, Evidence of the Advance of Verdict. I had Volume 1 and Volume 2. And I think they've been revised uh, as well. So uh, very good material. One thing I'd forgotten about Josh McDowell is he actually started out studying to disprove Christianity. And it was a challenge given to him by some Christians because he had mocked them in their faith. And he took time off of university as a pre-law student in order to travel Europe. And the... Uh, North America to collect data and he has his testimony written out in there but it's amazing to see how as he was trying to actually balance the facts with an so-called open mind yeah. and uh, that the Holy Spirit began to work in his heart through scripture and to sh- enlighten him of truth. Yeah. There's another guy that comes to mind immediately, Sir William Ramsey okay. uh, who was agnostic, uh, atheistic and then he decided to disprove that the Apostle Paul was false so he, what he did, he started doing an investigation from the book of Acts and started the places that were mentioned in the book of Acts and realized that this man was so precise, he came to faith in Christ. So uh, that's not surprising. That happens again and again. The evidence is there. It's just the distortion that you get in reading certain books and hearing certain persons, but they're not. A, but the evidence is there. For, God has not left himself without a witness, that is for sure. And anybody that does a proper investigation will come to a realization that the evidence is highly in favor of uh, God. Thank you to those who have sent in their questions so far, and we've had a couple of questions come in that we will get to once we get through this list of questions we have here. If you have a question, please feel free to send it in. We would love for you to send it in. You can either call and be put live on the air by calling 1-268-462-7420, or you can WhatsApp and text your question to 268-782-1454. Another book that just came to mind, Pastor, this person may enjoy is... um, and you've mentioned it many times on this program, but how Christianity changed the world. Yeah. I forget the author. Yeah, um, but that's a. You can Google that. Way. How Christianity. Yeah. You can Google that. Very interesting book. 
excuse me. All right, we've got another message. Uh, good afternoon, gentlemen. I thank God for his sound doctrine and for men who are willing to teach it. Nothing more and nothing less. I have a few questions that fall under the same umbrella. And warning, it's a little lengthy. Oh, we, even though your question may be lengthy, we're glad that you sent it in. Uh, Pastor, question number one. I grew up in a Christian household. I went to church. I went to a Christian school and was baptized as a teenager. I knew scripture, believed in the Trinity, and knew how to act as a Christian. I fell away from the church for a number of reasons. Though I never let go of my knowledge of God, I still chose to willfully sin. My view at the time was I am living much more honestly than the church folk who did what I did or even worse, but still continued to claim Christianity. Deep down, I thought it was one or the other. I foolishly chose the world, but at the time left good about not living a double life. Comparing my knowledge of God then and now, I am unsure if I was truly saved by Christ then. I may have known the Lord and his word, but fell into sin for years. I am not sure if that's possible. I also don't remember too many details as it was years ago, but could have, could I have been saved, but fell away for an extensive period? I ask because even in the world, I always feared God. I knew he was real and had many moments of trying to disassociate myself with my Christian upbringing and belief in him. There is a movement that tells of shifting your paradigm into progress in life. I believe it falls under the law of attraction. Knowing God was said to keep you back in life. This was the movement that I followed and tried to disconnect myself from for God for a few months. I failed. I repented and gave my life to Christ in Easter during the COVID lockdown when all fell away and I saw plainly that the world offered for years, that what the world offered for years, I was in it and knew that God was the only hope from my upbringing. Was I truly saved as a teenager? And before you answer that, Pastor, let me just say to this person who sent this in, we are excited for you that you have uh, cried out to the Lord Jesus Christ to save you. Yeah. Um, the beginning of the um, what the person stated uh, created some questions in my mind. For example, it said, um, I was brought in a Christian home, Christian school, uh, went to church, and then said, I knew scripture, I believe in the Trinity, and knew how to act as a Christian. That doesn't make you a Christian right there. So that's the first thing I was very suspicious about. Uh, the point that makes me feel that they're Christians when they come down to the next point where they say down the bottom I repented and gave Christ my life no that's a believer so my question to the person is um, while you were in the church and while you were going to school and you were in the Christian home while you knew the Trinity and you knew the scripture and you knew how to behave was there a point in your life where there was conviction deep conviction of your sin that's the first thing I want to ask you before you backslid and went away was there a really deep conviction at some point in your life number two was there repentance? Did that conviction of your sin lead you to a point of repentance? And did you put your faith and faith in the finished work of Christ? And was there a real change in your life? That's the, those are the four questions you need to answer. I can't answer those questions for you. But if you did not have conviction of your sin, if you did not repent that you can recall, if you didn't put your faith and trust in Christ, and if there was no real change in your life, mark it down. 
you are not saved. You were never saved. Okay, you went to a profession, but you're not saved. Now, it is possible that if you had convicted of your sin, you repented of your sin, uh, you put your faith and trust in Christ, uh, there was a change in your life, and then you got uh, somewhere distracted. Clearly, you were deceived by this new philosophy of having a paradigm shift and uh, that to make your life progressive. Therefore, you've got to move away from the Christian faith. You were deceived and you were misled. It's possible to go into a backslidden state, in my judgment, for years. But during your backslidden state, there must be chastening. God must be dealing with you. And uh, if you can retrace your life during that backslidden state, if you were backslidden, uh, you will see that God's hand was upon you, chastening you. Um, different ways he can do that. Uh, but you would know when things are happening in your life whether God is dealing with you as, as an individual. Now, it is possible that you were not saved if you didn't have conviction, you didn't repent, you didn't put faith and trust in Christ, and your life wasn't changed. And it's possible that as we all, even the COVID thing coming online might have been used by God to wake you up. And you said that you're very conscious when this time you, you were away from Him, that you still knew there was a God, you still fear God. But then there had to be something to bring your attention to. And I think that probably during this COVID period, you became aware that your life could end, uh, anybody's life could end. And it could very well be that God used that incident to call you to true faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Now, I don't, can't answer the question for you. You can only answer those four questions for me. Uh, were you convicted of your sin? Did you repent of your sins then? Did you put your faith in Or was there a change in your life? If those four things were true of you before you went out into the world, I would suggest that you, you had saving faith. If it was not true, I suggest that you just recently got saved by repenting and put your faith and trust in Christ. That's the first thing I would like to say uh, to you as a person. Unless I've spoken to you individually, uh, I would not be able to ha have those questions answered to say to you, yes, you were saved or not. But use that criteria, conviction, repentance of faith, repentance of sin, faith in Christ, and a changed life. If a man be in Christ, is what? A new creature. You must have had change in your life, okay? Next part of the question. Yeah, so before we move on, let me just ask this. Maybe sure. for the, another listener sure. who has a similar circumstances, and I don't mean to belittle the person who asked the question, but does it really, they know they're saved now. Does it matter really uh, when they were saved? Well, it's, it matters to the person here because the next question he asks, okay. should he get rebaptized? Okay. That is why it matters. Um, and again, Look, there are people who have made decisions, and uh, after a period of time, they have doubts, and they've prayed a prayer, prayer uh, sometimes more than once. Uh, those kind of people don't need to get rebaptized, okay? But if you are convinced that you were not saved, that's the way the person had to be convinced and not saved. Now, if he is not too sure and he believed that he was really saved, there's no need to get baptized. But if he's convinced he was not genuinely saved, I would recommend very strongly that he, he gets baptized. The other thing is I would sit down and talk with my pastor as to how to do this. What effect is it going to have? Uh, you've got to look at that as well. Uh, you know, it's there are people who would get baptized privately in a case like that if they're not too sure, but they just don't want to, you know, just want to be sure to get baptized. Um, but, it, you know, it might be good as well for other people. If you really come to the point where you think you're not saved, to, to be able to say that, you know, I, I made a decision, but I've come to the conclusion I'm not saved. It might wake up a lot of people who are in the church who have gone through a similar thing and not bold enough to take those kind of steps. So it might be beneficial for other people as well. And you mentioned baptized. Uh, some might get baptized privately, but isn't baptism a public act? 
Yeah, but if it's going to cause uh, people to doubt everybody, it's, oh, am I saved, whatever oh, it is, I think I you see. need to be very, very careful about that, right? Because you've already been truly baptism if you're saved, but it's just a case where you're not too sure. Uh, that's what I would recommend. I hope that answers the next question, uh, whether they should be baptized again. Thank you for sending in your question. Now, the third part, Pastor, beside reading and listening to the Word of God consistently, are there any other helpful tips to keep God as my focus in the battlefield called the mind? Well, you, you mentioned uh, besides reading and listening to the Word of God, so you're you're kind of kind of um, boxing yourself there where you just think that just reading Scripture is the only thing you need to do. I would su- suspect, uh, su- recommend as well that you include, in addition to reading the Bible, read some very good Christian books. Uh, there are some good Christian books that would help you grow in your Christian faith. I would also suggest you to get active in your church. Maybe you can become a Sunday school teacher or work with the youth. Listen, and the other thing is this. Get involved in discipling somebody else. You will never help yourself more in your studies than when you begin to disciple people because you have That's to true. research, you have to check, you have to investigate. So get involved in, in, in that matter. Um, the other thing is, uh, you mentioned reading the Bible, but try to get a regular prayer life. That would be important. And then you mentioned reading the Bible, but you're not reading, you're not on a, a personal Bible study. That's something different. Uh, you might need to spend some time studying the Word and taking your notes and stuff like that as well. Uh, here's another one. Share your faith with uh, other people uh, do some evangelism they'll ask you certain questions that would make you investigate and you're going to grow spiritually as well and then uh, learn from the mistakes of your past as well look back on what has happened in the past and see how you fell into a trap and then see what wisdom there's there and and then what counsel you can gather to help other people in that regard and uh, here's another one make restitution where possible in other words let's suppose you were generally saved and you've really been a bad testimony. Maybe you've ruined somebody's life, or maybe you've uh, taken advantage of somebody, whatever it is. You know what you can do? Maybe, I'm just, uh, suppose you're a boy and you've really messed up a girl's life or something. Uh, now that you're, you've made a decision, whether you, you're convinced you you do backslid on you, go to her and say, listen, you know, I made a tremendous mistake. I took advantage of whatever it is. And apologize. Uh, make some correction. Maybe during your accident state you said something to the boss or you did something that is wrong. You'd be surprised what it would mean to people for you to come back and, and make restitution where you can. You can't make restitution in every case. But if there is some real hurt or damage you've done, in retrospect, looking at it, uh, do something about that. And then the other thing I would suggest to you as well that would help you is to find a good Christian friend that can become an accountability partner. You know, uh, find someone that you can share things with and and, uh, they're going to be confidential and they can hold you accountable. How would you week? Call you once a week, whatever it is. Find out what's going on in your life. I think if you were to do those simple things, uh, several of them, I think about eight or nine I just mentioned, I think if you would take some of those and begin to work on them, I think it would be very, very helpful. But the two primary ones would be uh, a personal Bible study and uh, a consistent prayer life. I think those are the two, and all the others you can add, sharing your faith, discipling, becoming a person who works in the church in some aspect, uh, and then, of course, accountability partner, restitution, all those things that are important. Time across the Eastern Caribbean on this Tuesday evening is 8.34. 
Here's a question for you, Pastor. You recently have been discussing demonology and demons. This past week, I saw a man, most likely intoxicated, standing on the sidewalk, talking to, as if he was talking to someone that obviously was not there, but only he saw. Was he speaking to a demon? I I can't answer that question until I know the person, but I'm going to suggest to you that people who are involved in, in the, I would say, first time I see a guy doing like that, normally I think of drugs, because uh, I am totally, totally convinced uh, that when you are engaged in drugs and you have no longer control of your mind, what they call higher consciousness, I believe that you open the door of your mind to evil demonic spirits. Now, if you take a Christian worldview and you take the Bible literally, we know that there are demonic spirits and demonic powers trying to take control of people's lives, trying to get into people's mind. The Bible is very, very clear on this matter. Uh, and I believe that one of the things that is happening today is that you, these people who are on these drugs and uh, opening the, the door of their mind where they have no control, I believe that the demonic spirits are, are involved in this whole pattern. When I see people th- talking to themselves, they're hearing voices, no question about that. Um, Rastafarians will tell you, uh, those people who get high, that they hear voices. I can tell you about personal things from family line. Of uh, gave you a whole story, and all it's about marijuana it has nothing to do with crack cocaine, just pure marijuana. Seeing things, hearing things. After a while, there's no doubt in my mind that Satan uses uh, the modern drug movement to infiltrate the minds of people. So I suspect um, that there's a result of drug use. As a result of drug use, he's definitely hearing evil spirits speaking to him. It's not just his mind. No, no, people today just think that it's just a, a physical thing or a mental thing. It's more than that. We've got agencies at work that are trying to infiltrate people's mind, and that is the Bible talks about that. But we're living in a world that they call a scientific world. Anything that's invisible, they can't see. And in this talk, talk with spirit world, people that just have a, a negative uh, predisposition that they don't accept these things. But if we accept scriptures as it is, there are agents, supernatural agents at work, working against man, trying to destroy man. And I think that we they assist them in the, this matter of drug use. You're listening to That's Truth. Do you have a question? We Maybe it's questions. We would love for you to send them in or call in. You can call and be put live on the air by calling 268-462-7420. Or you can WhatsApp or text your question to 268-782-1454. All right. I had mentioned earlier the book, How Christianity Changed the World, and someone has sent in the author. It is by Alvin J. Schmidt. So if you are interested in that book, Uh, Look for a book by Alvin J. Schmidt, How Christianity Changed the World. I have a copy of it. I have not read even the majority of it, but what I have read is very interesting. It's a pretty lengthy book, if I recall correctly. Pastor, I think that was a great question to segue back into um, the topic of demonology. And last week you were talking about uh, a number of things, and you finished up by talking about demons having uh, personality. Let's start tonight with where did they come from, or what was the origin of demons? Yeah, I think we we kind of began that last time, but I think we got interrupted or something. But we were talking about the identity of demons, where they come from, and we we mentioned several theories that uh, are offered. Uh, We mentioned, for example, that some people think they're really natural diseases, 
and it's just a lot of superstitious talk, but we just don't understand the disease yet. But when we do begin the disease, we understand that there's no real evil spirits behind it. Then there's another view was that um, these are the spirits of wicked people who have died. And now they come back and haunt us like they've got ghosts. Uh, people talk about that. The third one is that they're dismembered uh, spirits of a pre-Adamic race. And they use Genesis 1 and 2, that there was a pre-Adamic race in, 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 at first. And then the, uh, God created the world good. And then it was became chaos. And it's a result of this pre-Adamic race, etc. And then the other fourth one is that there's the offspring of the antediluvians between the sons of God, etc., and the fifth one, which I believe is the biblical one, is that these are fallen angels and that fell with Satan who have now become uh, demonic spirits that he uses in his uh, attempt to destroy man and God, uh, attack man, uh, God and destroy man. So th- those are the, the five views, but I think the consistent one that um, I believe it is the best one is the fact that um, these are spirits, uh, demonic spirits that um, fell with Satan and are now part of his host uh, fighting against humankind. So you could safely say that demons, based on that uh, view, uh, demons are a result of the fall? Yeah. Now, there's some reason for that too, Nathan. Uh, For example, the demons and the fallen angels bear the same relationship to Satan. For example, Satan is called the prince of the power of the air, demonic powers. He's also called the the, the Bible talks the, the devil and his angels. So clearly there is some uh, kind of relationship there. The other thing is that demons are spirits, and we know that Satan is a fallen spirit, so they have the same nature. And then they involve in the same activities. You find that in the book of Revelation, there are demons that are trying to destroy man, and in the book of Revelation, the angels, fallen angels, are trying to destroy man, so they're doing the same activity. And then they're in the same abode. You find that demonic spirits are in the abyss, and when the book of Revelations they unlock demonic spirits, uh, what is called angels to, to come out, they are from the abyss as well. Uh, and you never find in the biblical text where there is a mention of the two of them separately. You either mention fallen angels or you mention demons. You never find that there's any clash between the two of them. It's either one or the other. Uh, so I think that those are some of the reasons why it's believed, uh, and I think it's consistent that there's really these fallen angels that fell with Satan that now become demonized. So would you be comfortable with saying that demons and fallen angels could be used interchangeably? Yeah, I would, I would, I would, use, I would say that. Um, I don't think there's any difference there whatsoever. It's just that the, the, the word uh, demons, uh, the, 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 word, the word angel means messenger servant. Demon means intelligence. So the, certainly uh, as an angel the the, 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 um, the fallen angels are messengers of Satan but in relation to man they're intelligent beings that he uses to trap man, deceive man. Next question um, are demons free? Like are they just roaming around? Well there are some demons that are clearly free otherwise you wouldn't have um, demonic activity today. Uh, but uh, in Scripture, uh, while it is true that demons are free, the Bible also makes it clear that they're demons that are confined. So there are demons that are, are, are free today that Satan uses, uh, but they're also um, another, the, the other group which are confined. Um, um, when it comes to confined angels, there are two groups as well. There are those that are permanently confined and those that are temporarily co- confined. And the reason why we make this differentiation is because when you read the book of Peter and Jude, 
it is said that there are certain demons that are kept in, in darkness, a place called Tetsaras. Uh, and the Bible makes it very clear why that has happened. And uh, maybe we could, we, could, we could share that with you for just a moment. There are three passages, I think, that explain how these demons are confined permanently until the final day of judgment. You'll find that in Jude, and you'll find that in Peter. We look at shortly. But it's believed that these are the ones that are referred to in Genesis chapter 6, about the sons of God going in unto the daughters of women. Now, the sons of God in the Scriptures, if you uh, study that use in the Scriptures, consistently in the Old Testament, the sons of God are angels. Uh, And I'm not too sure why um, people have come to the point uh, of saying that they are the godly Sephites that went into the Canaanites. That's what they said. The, the sons of God, they said the Sephites and the sons of the daughters of women are the Canaanites. And the sons of God went into the daughters of women. They said that's how it became corrupted. But if you look at the passage very carefully, that's, that, that, that cannot be true because if you take the Bible and let the Bible interpret itself, you take the first mention of the sons of God and then you take the second one and the third one and the fourth one, you'll find that consistently in the Bible it refers to angelic beings. The first mention there is in, in Genesis chapter 6. Okay. The next mention is in Job 1.6, if you look there for just a moment. Job's, Job 1.6 says, uh, Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came also among them. Clearly, uh, uh, this is referring to angelic accountability, where Satan is in this case given access. But notice he's described as one of the sons of God. If you look also at Job two one. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came also among them to present himself before the Lord. Again, you, this, this is not, this 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 can't be Sethites. Yeah. Okay, uh, they can't be Canaanites either. Clearly, they're talking about angelic beings given an accountability and Satan being one of them. And then if you look at Job 38, verse 7. Job 38, verse 7 says, When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Right, again, it's not when uh, the earth was created and everything. The sons of God there shouted for joy would be angelic beings that shouted for joy when they saw the creation. Okay, What I'm saying here that consistently, if you take the Bible and let the Bible interpret itself, the only proper interpretation of that particular word that, that says Son of God is referring to something that happened where these uh, uh, fallen angelic beings uh, cohabitated with uh, humankind and uh, as a result um, a generation was created that God had to destroy and that's why the flood is mentioned consistently in connection with these fallen angels um, if you look at um the passage in Genesis chapter 6. Genesis chapter, chapter 6. Yeah. And look at um, verse, uh, you can look at two. verse 2 and verse 3. Read that. That the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were fair, and they took them wives of all which they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not always strive with men, for that he also is flesh, yet his days shall be an hundred and twenty years. Yeah, and then if you read verse 4. There were giants in the earth in those days, and also after that, when the sons of God came in unto the daughters of men, and they bare children to them, the same became mighty men, which were of old men of renown. Okay, two things. 
Notice that there were in that days what they called the Nephilims. Uh, if you read that in verse number four, uh, they're called what? Uh, they were giants in the earth. Word, see the word giant? Yeah. That is a complete, um, let me put it this way, complete bad translation. The, okay. word, the word in the Hebrew language is Nephilim. And Nephilim means fallen ones. Okay. Uh, oh, that's what it means. That fallen clears ones. a lot that up. Clear, that's what I'm saying. And the other thing is that the reason why it was trans, and the, 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 the when the uh, the the uh, the Septuagint was being translated, they used the word there for Nephilim. They used the word gigantes, but the word gigantes in the Greek language means titans. You know, you always hear in the Greek mythology these titans, half God and half man. That's the word that was used by these guys uh, when they translated the Old Testament into the into the uh, into the New Te- into, into into Greek. But the word gigantes is where we get the word giant from. So the English word was used for gigantes when the word should be used titans. See, but that's where we get the confusion today. The word is not giant. The word is nephilim. And the other word that is used in the in the passage, um, Nathan. If you look at it, uh, it's finally, look at verse number, uh, it's same verse, you've got mighty men there? Yes. Um, and they came in unto the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. The same became mighty men. Again, the word is not mighty men, the word is gibberim. Okay, gibberim. Uh, and the whole idea is that the, as a result of this byproduct, these nephilims, which are the fallen ones, along with these uh, gibberim, these were unusually gifted uh, what you might call supermen. Not that they were giants, but they had more intelligence. They were um, they could more do strength. things, more strength, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I think I mentioned at some point in time when we discussed this matter that this is where you get Greek mythology coming from, and the and the uh, Roman mythology about the the gods mar- intermarrying with etc. and creating half man and half god. Behind the mythology is this is where the core idea has come from, and clearly there was a, a understanding of this, but eventually became distorted and became part of the Greek mythology and the Roman mythology. Now, the other passage that helped us very clearly to understand this clearly is look at Second Peter chapter 2, verse 4 and 5. Second Peter chapter 2, verses 4 and 5 read, For if God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell, and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment, and spared not the old world, but saved Noah, the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood upon the world of the ungodly. Notice two things. Number one, that there are certain angelic beings that God didn't spare, and he's reserved them in darkness until the uh, final judgment. But notice that they also connected with Noah, the flood. Okay? okay. You've you got to understand the connection there. These fallen beings that left and Jude will tell you next when we look at Jude these are a a group of fallen angelic beings that did not stay in the order where God had confined them but because they were fallen fallen, they went in onto women that's what has happened the the other thing I, I want to mention Nathan is that one would ask the question why would they do this and I think we, we talked about it somewhat, somewhat, that the whole idea, remember in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, you've got a promise that the Messiah has come and seated the woman that will destroy the Satan, uh, uh, Brutus' head. The, what apparently Satan was trying to do was to corrupt the, the human race so that the Messiah would not come because the Messiah has to come to a woman. See, And uh, clearly this, and that's why God had to send the flood. It was not just to deal with the human problem, 
but this uh, group that had to be totally destroyed and uh, had to restart again from Noah because the seed must come through humankind. It must not come through a mixture, etc. If you go to um, Jude um, 6 and 7, these were this same matter. Jude 6 and 7 says, And the angels which kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation, he hath reserved in everlasting chains, under darkness, unto the judgment of the great day. Verse 7, Even as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities about them in like manner, giving themselves over to fornication, and going after strange flesh, as set forth an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Now notice the same thing, that uh, Jude uses the same language. In, in darkness until the final day of judgment, they are totally confined. These are not, these are, these are the confined. And then, but notice what Jude does now in this case. Jude gives you, explains to you the nature of their sin. Read it again and you see what he's explained. He compares them to Sodom and Gomorrah. What was yeah. Sodom and Gomorrah's sin? They went after what? Uh, in like manner, giving themselves over to fornication. And? Going after strange flesh. Strange flesh. The word fornication is immorality. Mm-hmm. Okay. So the Sodom and Gomorrah problem was immorality, and the nature of the immorality was what going after strange flesh. What was the strange flesh? Homosexuality. That was not natural, that was not normal. And they're, they're comparing these angelic beings went after strange flesh. That's why they use the illustration there. They're, they're going after strange flesh is that they should not have created cohabitation with humankind. So that is what Jude is now giving you the, the nature. Their, the nature of their sin is like the problem with Sodom and Gomorrah. Sodom and Gomorrah, people went after strange flesh. Homosexuality is not normal, it's not natural, it's perversion. The angelic beings went after human flesh, which is completely out of the order God had ordained. So that is why they suffer this, this complete com- confinement, and they will not be released until the final day of judgment. So they are totally confined, and the reason why they're confined is because the abnar- abnar- abnormality of their sin, which God had forbidden. Pastor, we have a WhatsApp question from Antigua. Very heartfelt question. It says, Good night. I would like to know, when you are afraid of the Lord... What is that really telling you about the Lord? For example, when you go to bed and you feel like your body is shutting down and you become afraid because you don't know what would happen to you. I don't feel that way, so it's very difficult for me to understand that. My fear of God basically is offending Him. My fear of God is that I have not come up to His standard, not lived up to His standard. My fear of God is that... Uh, that He will take me at the time when I am not ready, feel I'm ready. Uh, that's where my fear comes. Uh, from God, so you, 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 that person's fear is of a different nature. But uh, our could that fear be conviction. It, it could be conviction. I, I wouldn't dispute that. But our fear of God should come out of reverence, the fact of its holiness. I think that is why I, I probably fear Him more than anything else. That I recognize that I'm so imperfect, uh, so full of errors, so full of mistakes. That the thought of going before a perfect God and a holy God, and He knows my mind, He knows my thoughts, He knows everything about me. I think that is where my fear comes, and I think that it's a proper reverential fear for Him. We fear our parents, not that we didn't love them, but we also had a sense of fear that uh, as a result of if we did something wrong, there were consequences. So I think it's a legitimate fear for the believer, but it's not a cringing, cowering fear uh, because we're His children. But we do fear offending him, and I think that was a healthy fear for the believer. As a matter of fact, the fear of God that normally keeps us out of sin. Yeah. When we lose our fear of God, it's then that sin comes into our lives, and we, we live very lackadaisical, uh, loose lives. But the moment we have this fear of God, you remember Joseph? 
when he told part of his wife, how can I do this great witness in the sight of, of God? Because Joseph had this conscious fear of God, and I think that's what kept Joseph moral. And once we have that healthy, conscious fear of God, I do think it will keep us in lane with his holiness. What about if this person is not a born-again believer? What steps would you advise that they take? Uh, how does one become a Christian? Well, if a, if a person has um, that fear, uh, whether uh, let's take an unsafe person, clearly uh, he has a God consciousness, which is good. Uh, but I, I was in that person's position. I had not put my faith and trust in Christ. I certainly would pray and ask the Lord to lead me in the way of truth that I can get an understanding of what the, how do I get connected with him, how kind of a relationship with him. And I think uh, I would recommend to that person to uh, search the Gospel of John, which is one of the standard books that we use, perhaps John chapter 3, where God is, Christ is dealing with Nicodemus to understand the concept of being born again. And in that passage, uh, being born again is involved with one of two things. Number one, it has to do with the Holy Spirit. Uh, that which is born of flesh is flesh, that which is born of spirit is spirit. And then our Lord used an illustration, the spirit blew up where he lifteth, and you can't tell where it comes or where it goes, but you can see the effects of it. So the Holy Spirit mysteriously works in a person's life, bringing them to conviction, because his job is to do what? Convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. Of sin, because of unbelief. Of righteousness, because Christ came into this world, he's a righteous one. Of judgment, if we don't repent, we're going to suffer judgment. And so the, the Holy Spirit will bring that conviction. And then, of course, if you read John chapter 3, it goes on where our Lord said, For God so loved the world, same passage, John 3, text 16, that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believe on him should not perish but have eternal life. And then he used this illustration as Moses lifted the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. So salvation relates to Christ going to the cross. He'd be lifted up on the cross as a snake was lifted on the cross. And if we put our faith and trust in him, because... The illustration that he used when there was sin in the camp of Israel and God sent serpents to bite them and they were dying, uh, he told Moses to make a, a bronze serpent, put it on the cross, on, on a pole, and whoever looked and believed would be healed. And that's exactly what salvation is. When Christ died on the cross, we put our faith and trust in what he did on the cross, and uh, that brings spiritual healing. So I would say repentance of your sins because of the conviction of the Holy Spirit and put your faith and trust in Christ because of the finished work on the cross. Very, very, very simple the gospel is. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved, except thou repent, you're going to perish. Those two things, repentance and faith, is the essence and summary of what salvation is about. What is the role of obedience or uh, church uh, attendance in salvation? Well, we, we say that there's a word in the Scripture that's used, especially in the um, book of Romans. It's called the obedience of faith, right? And there's no doubt in my mind that when a person gets converted, the whole purpose of conversion is to lead that person to live an obedient life of faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Jesus says, if you love me, do what? Keep okay. my commandments. Keep my word, basically. That's what he's saying. If a person is truly saved, he should desire uh, to be obedient to the Lord. Peter talks about this as newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word that you may grow thereby. So obedience is should be a normal part of a Christian life, the desire to obey God, the desire to live according to God's word, the desire to follow the scriptures. Uh, so I would I would say to a person that obedience should be should be a factor that follows conversion. A person who doesn't desire to follow the Lord, doesn't desire to obey the, the word of God, uh, I think that person's conversion is suspect because I believe that the Holy Spirit who comes to dwell in the believer at conversion, 
and now leads that person into truth, taking the Word of God and explaining God's truth to that person. That person grows as that person reads the Word of God. What should the listener do who accepts Christ, but they have a job where they're working on Sunday? Uh, can Do they need to wait until they're no longer working that job in order to be truly saved? My recommendation to uh, repeat that again. Uh, do they need to wait until they no longer work on Sunday before they can become a Christian? No, I don't. I don't. I don't. I don't think so. Um, I would say to you, um, if the Lord is moving you in that direction, the Lord is working in your life, and you would know if there's conviction, there's guilt, there's, there's, there's uh, as you said, fear, there's dread. Uh, Lord has multiple ways of bringing a person to conviction, but once there's a sense of conviction, you're conscious that God is doing something, He's trying to get your attention. Uh, follow the Lord in that step and respond to Him and give your heart and life to the Lord. And then um, my recommendation with you is to ask God, not Lord, I'm saved, I desire to be obedient to you, and I know I should be um, in your house. Um, and I find myself in this particular job. Um, help me to deal with this matter. You might be able to go into the boss and explain to him, listen, I got saved, I'm a Christian. I feel I'm obligated to, to go to the Lord's house. Can I shift? Can I work out something? And then if that doesn't work out, you continue what you're doing and ask God to give you a different job. But don't leave it that way. Put the Lord, your faith and trust in Him and let Him work things out for you. If you can engineer it yourself, you don't need Him. Prove Him. Thank you for joining us for this episode of That's Truth. Be sure that you join us next week, Lord willing, as we have another exciting episode. Thank you for all the questions who came in. Thank you for encouraging others to listen. Stay safe and have a blessed night and a blessed, safe rest of the week. You're listening to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse, broadcasting from the island of Antigua on 1160 AM, 92.3 FM. Thank you for joining us for today's program. We pray that the Holy Spirit uses the truths shared from God's Word to strengthen your faith. Now you've heard it. That's truth. Thanks for listening. Remember, you can hear more answers to life's questions on That's Truth, Tuesday at 7.30 p.m. on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. If you're in Antigua, you can listen at 92.3 MHz FM. If you're in the Caribbean, you can listen at 1160 kilohertz AM or listen online at www.radiolighthouse.org from anywhere in the world. Or you can subscribe to this podcast. Looking forward to having you join us next time.